Good evening, everyone. Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast, proudly presents a series on past, current, and future scientific research. What can we learn from the past and current efforts to advance future directions in research to benefit our planet overall? I am your host, Dr. Tyler Alone, and this evening it is my pleasure to host and present Episode 1, Part 1 of the podcast. It's my honor to speak with Dr. James Trosco this evening. Dr. Trosco is a pioneer in the field of understanding cancer biology, and his insight and knowledge in the past has led and will continue to lead advancements in the field of cancer research. And myself, being a young scientist, I aspire to have a career as fruitful as Dr. Trosco one day. Without further ado, Dr. James Trosco. Well, today I want to start off by uh, introducing uh, Dr. James Trosco. Dr. James Trosco uh, did a BA in uh, a multidisciplinary kind of background, biology, chemistry, math, and physics at Central Michigan University. Uh, this was from 1956 to 1960. Uh, and then he proceeded to do his master's and PhD in radiation genetics, uh, and then a postdoctoral fellowship in uh, radiation carcinogenesis and DNA repair and mutagenesis work at the Oak Ridge National Lab, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, PhD was at Michigan State University. Uh, Dr. Trosco has over 50 years of basic medical science research, and today it's going to be, a, I believe, a roller coaster of talking about that research over the years. And he's definitely been a pioneer in the area of mutagenesis uh, and the future prevention of treatments of chronic diseases in epigenetics. Uh, he's got an amazing talk for us today. We're also going to chat with him a bit about his background and how he kind of got into research. Um, and I think maybe before Dr. Trosco starts, I'll start off with a, just a kind of a more simple question for him to chat a little with. And so Dr. Trosco, you know, how did you get into the field you're in today? How, where did that start? Well, that is a loaded question in a way, but as a high school student, I happened to be exposed to a, a brilliant high school teacher. And that united me with my own personal experience just as a son of an immigrant from Hungary uh, who liked to fish and exposed me from the age of three to the wildlife around Muskegon, Michigan, right on the west coast of, of the state of Michigan. So I always got exposure to the wildlife. And this high school teacher somehow connected the intellectual aspects of studying biology to my personal experience. He then convinced me to go to Central Michigan University, which is in the state of Michigan, obviously, and 
that's where he was from. Now, I came from a family that was poor. My father worked in a foundry uh, for 44 years, uh, never had much of a high school education. Uh, and when I got there, I realized how much I enjoyed the university atmosphere, but I also realized at midterm I was not going to be able to finish. There was no money for me to carry on. But fortunately, fortunately, Sputnik flew over the campus in November of uh, 1957. And that opened up a whole new world for me because it afforded me a, skele uh, a fellowship to take only science courses to get a degree so I could be trained to beat the Russians. I was the first probably student who took a STEM curriculum. This is 1957, and I was able to take a major in biology, chemistry, and I uh, minored in math and physics. That also afforded me two summers of actual research experience at Argonne National Lab outside of Chicago, because at that time, the only places in the United States that had the background, the facilities to do research that might relate to why uh, President Kennedy wanted this STEM program to work to beat the Russians. And in my case, at that time, the Chinese, the Soviet Union, and the United States were exploding nuclear bombs all over the place. And the public and the government was concerned about radiation fallout causing all kinds of uh, genetic diseases. And so that's how I got into the field of radiation biology, radiation genetics, was this undergraduate fellowship that gave me the experience both at Central and at Argonne National Lab. That then afforded me an opportunity to uh, get a graduate degree, PhD uh, degree, because one of the people I met in my training as an undergraduate at Argonne, had just accepted a job at Michigan State University. And he knew of me and he said, why don't you come to Michigan State? I'll get you a fellowship. And indeed, I got a fellowship to go there. After three years of studying radiation genetics, uh, that then afforded me another opportunity which was a fellowship to do a, a postdoc at Oak Ridge National Lab, which was at that time not only the mecca of radiation biology, but also the mecca of modern molecular biology. And I was surrounded by giants. I mean, like uh, Richard Setlow, we called him Dimer Dick Setlow because he was the one who discovered that ultraviolet light could damage DNA 
and there were bacteria that could repair the damage, and those bacteria that could repair the DNA damage. Fortunately, I got training under him, as well as two other giants in the field of radiation biology, Dr. Ernest Chu, who was the godfather of the development of in vitro assays to measure mutations in mammalian and human cells. And then Dr. Sheldon Wolf, who then was the giant in the study of how radiation causes uh, chromosomal damage. And from that, and I'll make this long 50 plus year journey as uh, short as I can, uh, because of that training, at Oak Ridge, at that time of radiation fallout because of the nuclear bomb testing, uh, I then got a position to go back to Michigan State University as a assistant professor. One thing I left out was while I was at Michigan State as a graduate student, I was there when Dr. Barney Rosenberg developed and discovered the anti-cancer drug cisplatinum. This is the world's most used anti-cancer drug in the world. It made him a multi-millionaire, uh, but it made me a little bit famous because I was in the lab when that was discovered, and he graciously put me on his first paper in Nature uh, on the discovery of cisplatinum as an anti-cancer drug. Well, I got the job to go back to Michigan State, now as an assistant professor, and unfortunately for me, in a way, uh, all of a sudden, Rachel Carson published her book on Silent Spring, and all of a sudden, the government and the public was no longer interested in radiation. And here I was trained to be uh, an expert in DNA repair in human cells. I had just discovered with Jim Cleaver at uh, California that the human syndrome of xeroderma pigmentosum, which could not repair uh, UV damage to skin cells, and they, of course, uh, got cancer. But then, like I said, Rachel Carson's book came out, which basically said, forget about radiation, uh, worry about the chemicals that were killing the eagles and fish and frogs and, and the like. And I had to force my uh, mind to change too. I had to follow the money. And to make a long story short now, uh, that got me into chemical carcinogenesis, which then gave me probably one of the most unique backgrounds at that time, having strong uh, research experience in radiation genetics, and now into chemical carcinogenesis that got me into the lab at McArdle Cancer Lab, which was the mecca of chemical carcinogenesis, working with the late 
Van Potter, uh, who was a giant in the field of chemical carcinogenesis. And from that, I went to Hiroshima, Japan to study because I had both of these backgrounds, radiation and chemicals, to study the effect of the atomic bombs on the survivors in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Finally, uh, back home, uh, off and on to Sicily, uh, to Japan, and to Korea to more or less put all of this together, radiation, chemicals, chemical carcinogenesis, the origin of cancer cells from stem cells, the isolation of the first human adult organ-specific stem cells, and here I am, an 84-year-old guy with all of that experience. So to answer your question, why am I here with you guys? I heard your web uh, webinar, and I was impressed with this company not only trying to develop new visual technologies, but also using various assays hooking up with those technologies to study modern biology and pathologies of all kinds of diseases. So that's why I'm here, I guess. No, that was that was a amazing story. And like, you know, I, I hope at some point in my later career I can tell a similar story with gaining more experience and um definitely I'm fortunate to have been able to work on some really cool assays. I, I also I went to a very, very small undergraduate university as well and uh there we were limited with our funding and so we had to use traditional assay methods to study cancer biology, but it it taught me fundamentals that'll uh carry throughout my career. Dr. Trosco, I'm gonna Obviously, I want you to show some of this work over 50 plus years, and you gave us a really, really nice overview of that work, and uh, we'll we'll dive into a little bit more of the details. Uh, so, I guess just starting, when was this picture taken here uh, on the screen? It was taken probably just at the time I reached 65 when I was supposed to retire. And I <laughs> I haven't yet retired, but uh, it was taken in front of the research building in which uh, I had my lab. And we have a beautiful uh, children's garden and a Japanese garden right back. So uh, my students and myself would go out there for lunch, uh, you know, during the summer anyway. Uh, and that's when the picture was taken. That was my last group. So, yeah, I'm going to let Dr. Trosso talk a little bit about some precision medicine, uh, which is obviously growing rapidly even today, and uh, it's going to continue to blow up in the field of being able to treat and prevent cancer. And I, I like that word, Dr. Trosco, prevent is is key with precision medicine, not just treat. And the differences between artificial and real intelligence in understanding the roles of stem cells, gap junctions, epigenetics with 3D human adult stem cells. I'm, I'm really excited to hear this talk, Dr. Trosco. Uh, 
before I uh, get into the slides, I just want to, if you will, apologize to all of the bioinformatists and people who are using artificial intelligence. In no way am I saying that artificial intelligence cannot generate uh, with unbiased algorithms patterns in understanding normal biology and the pathology of any disease. In fact, that technique of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so forth can, in fact, identify patterns. But the question I raise is those patterns do not in any way give you an understanding of underlying mechanisms. So the difference between artificial intelligence as I know it versus real intelligence, which is <laughs> the use of the human brain uh, alone, uh, just dreaming, if you will, with ideas of hypothesis testing of mechanisms will give you a different insight. So the two have to work together. And that's all I'm saying is that artificial intelligence alone cannot give you the underlying mechanism of any pathology, whether it's diabetes, cancer, uh, atherosclerosis, it doesn't make any difference. You have to understand mechanisms. So with that, I'm going to, uh, in the time limited I have, I'll talk about stem cells, gap junctions, epigenetics, and using three-dimensional human adult stem cells. Those are going to be the key features. That's why I have on the bottom of that slide a picture of stem cells. There's uh, three objectives I want to make clear. First, we have to recognize that human stem cells, which are different from their progenitor cells that can divide in a finite number of times, or the terminally differentiated cells that cannot divide at all, these stem cells are the only cells in our body that can divide either symmetrically or asymmetrically. And then in our body, we have two forms of cell communication, namely the earliest type that was ever detected, namely a cell can secrete a molecule such as a hormone, a growth factor, a cytokine. And those, and the other one is gap junctional communication, which was only discovered in about 1966 by Lowenstein and others. And these two forms of communication, together with the stem cells, regulate homeostatic control of whether cells proliferate whether they differentiate, whether they apoptose, whether they senesce, or even if they're a terminally differentiated cell like a, uh, uh, a beta cell in the pancreas, they will adaptively respond to glucose by producing insulin. The second point is we have to appreciate that adult stem cells 
exist in all of our organs, in our eye, our brain, our liver, everywhere. And thirdly, the process by which we can alter stem cell behavior is either through a mutation or epigenetic changes. And these can contribute to birth defects and virtually all chronic diseases. Uh, but before we get to the science now of the stem cells and cell communication and epigenetics, I want to remind you all of this paper by Alex Gamma. Personalized medicine is the latest promise of a gene-centered biomedicine to provide treatments of custom-tailored to the specific needs of patients. Although surrounded by much hype, personalized medicine at present lacks the empirical and theoretical foundations, I would say mechanistic foundations, necessary to render it a realistic long-term perspective. In particular, the role of genetic data and the relationship between causal understanding, prediction, pre prevention, and treatment need clarifying. So the role of personalized medicine between treating and really understanding the diagnosis of human diseases, is that a 50-50 relationship in your mind? Well, where do you stand on that? Is it, does it have to be 50-50 or do we see more importance on the prevention and the prediction side versus treating too late? Boy, that's a... That's a really important question. I think you really need to understand mechanisms both to be able to prevent real diseases and also to treat it. If you don't understand mechanisms, I'll give you an example later in the talk whereby if you only think about mutations causing a disease and only looking for changes in the genomic DNA and responding to that, uh, you're never going to solve the problem. And I, I'm going to give you a real-life human example of that in a few moments. So to answer your question, the it, it's not 50-50. In, in my mind, you have to understand mechanisms because if you don't, you can take these patterns uh, that are derived by artificial intelligence and assume that that pattern will tell you uh, that you have to do something or not do something, and you will get a good result. And I'm going to say, no, that is not going to be the case. There are so many examples <laughs> where we paved the way to hell by thinking we know what the problem is, all right? <laughs> okay. In other words, Good there's point. so much of, of modern medicine today. You take a pill and uh, that's supposed to do something good, and most Americans especially, uh, most Westerners, if one pill seems to do you good, then maybe five or six will do you better. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. If you understood the mechanism, you realize that there are threshold effects, for example. 
or where a molecule like a drug, which is antioxidant properties at, at low level, but at high levels, it has pro-oxidant activity. So understanding the mechanisms is important. Finally, okay. we're going to go up to Hanahan and Weinberg. Uh, this concept of theirs, of uh, the hallmarks of cancer, changed the paradigm in the minds of most people studying at least cancer. Seeing Jesus, as they now have in this particular quote, makes me believe that they are on to something. Some would argue that in the search for the origin and the treatment of this disease, naming cancer, will come over the next quarter century in much the same manner as it has in the past by adding further layers of complexity to the scientific literature that is already complex beyond measure. But, as they said, we can anticipate otherwise. Those researching the cancer problem will be practicing a dramatically different type of science that we have experienced over the last 25 years. Surely much of this change will be apparent at the technical level. But ultimately, the more fundamental change will be conceptual. And I think this last line or two is relevant to your company because one of the things that you apparently will be very good at is developing many new technical approaches to study uh, the pathologies of diseases. But the other point is you have to understand the concepts that will come from mechanisms. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That you know, we we will have the equipment, but if conceptually we don't understand, it's it's going to leave huge gaps. A hundred hundred percent percent. Doctor Rosenkranz was a student of Bruce Ames. Bruce Ames. Okay. Was the person who back in 1973, I believe it was, who really changed the paradigm of many people studying diseases. In other words, things that caused mutations were the bad guys of, of humanity. And he was one who differed with me constantly in the literature, <laughs> till one day he too had the Jesus moment and he, said, he published this paper, and I, I love it because I quote it all the time. With respect to cancer causation, integration of the analyses suggests that the inhibition of gap junctional intercellular communication is involved in the non-genotoxic cancer induction or the non-genotoxic phases of the cancer process such as inflammation, cell toxicity, cell proliferation, inhibition of cell division and uh, differentiation, and apoptosis. So this now puts, I think, in the highlight of what your, your company is trying to do and what every other 
company is trying to do in biotech is really to focus in on what changes are taking place in the body that has 200 trillion cells, 200 different hmm. kinds of cells, all talking to each other in different languages, Russian, Italian, Sicilian, Spanish, whatever. <laughs> and how does that whole body make sense of all of this chatter that's going on? And it turns out this paper, which just came out a year ago or so, here we review the literature surrounding connexins, which are the gap junction proteins in cancer cells in terms of specific connexin functions and propose that connexins function upstream most, if not all, of the hallmarks of cancer. Whoa! When I saw that, uh, he too uh, saw or had the Jesus moment and changed his whole concept of how to study uh, chronic diseases. Here's the foundation on which now the subsequent slides will go into the science. These are what I consider facts and concepts of human carcinogenesis. But while we're talking about carcinogenesis, for those of you who are interested in diabetes or dementia or uh, Alzheimer's, uh, it doesn't make any difference. All cancers originate from a normal cell of the human body containing 200 trillion cells. There are two opposing hypotheses of what that normal cell is. So in the cancer field, one of the oldest hypotheses is that the stem cells of our body give rise to the cancer. On the other hand, there's still a, a large proportion of cancer researchers who believe that a somatic, terminally differentiated cell can be reprogrammed. In other words, it's primarily due to Dr. Yamanaka in Japan, who got the Nobel Prize for isolating induced pluripotent stem cells. And I'll go into that later. The oldest concept of the complicated evolutionary carcinogenic process showed clearly, this is well over 75 years ago, that the initiation of a single normal cell in our body occurs with three different phases. The first is the initiation phase. Initiation phase is an irreversible process. In other words, cancer out of that 200 trillion cells in our body only arises in most people in one cell. And it being irreversible seems to be either a mutation in one of the critical cancer-associated genes, which is probably about 150 or 200 of our 20,000 genes. That mutation could occur either by an error of DNA replication, and I'll show you that in a moment, or an error in DNA replication of a stem cell. Now this 
initiate itself must be amplified by a promotion mechanism because the cancer is not just one single cell. It's, it could be billions in that tumor. And that promotion process actually is not a mutagenic process. It's an epigenetic process that alters the expression of genes of that initiated cell. Finally, this promoted initiated cell has to acquire other mutations and other epigenetic changes, which allows the premalignant cell to invade and metastasize tissue. This is the third phase, the progression phase. And that's the stage that Hallmark, uh, uh, that Hanahan and Weinberg call the hallmarks of cancer. And I just hmm. put down here, keep in uh, back of your mind, least human cancers are most strongly associated with uh, nutrition and diets. Thank you for tuning in to part one, episode one, where we just hosted Dr. James Trosco and heard his amazing rise into research, how it started, what happened in the beginning. We have so much more to tell in the coming parts of episode one. It was also really great to get to learn more about Dr. Trosco in terms of his personal side as well. I know you will all be super excited to hear the following parts of this wonderful episode where we will continue to dive deeper into understanding cancer biology and how we can use modern techniques and therapy to intervene to hopefully slow the progression of cancer among humans. Look forward to seeing you in part two. Thanks. <laughs>